When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Besides the screen you spent most of your time staring at this week, chances are you are also captivated by a big screen video installation. From billboards to scoreboards, we inform and entertain audiences with our big screen solutions. Visit bigscreenvideo.com.au to see how BSV can bring your space to life. Welcome to Inspiring Stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Hello, my name is Tim McMillan. Welcome to another episode of Inspiring Stories brought to you by Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Uh, My guest in this episode has once described himself as a grumpy old bastard, but I'm sure he's nothing of the sort. Um, He is, uh, to many, an absolute legend uh, in the field of aviation here in Western Australia, and dare I say it, Australia. Uh, Hails from the US uh, and, in fact, uh, spent many years uh, in the US Navy flying uh, phantoms in the Vietnam War, uh, landing his planes on uh, on, on carriers uh, out in the middle of the ocean and all sorts of crazy things. He's uh, uh, also started uh, and successfully operated a flight school here in Western Australia and trained God knows how many commercial and private pilots over the years. On the entrepreneurial side too, I'm very curious to hear about this, although I'll have to uh, dance around it in a very uh, PG-friendly way. Started a Mile High Club here in Perth as well. Well, I'm sure there are some stories to tell uh, around that uh, chapter in my guest history. So let's say hello and welcome uh, to Chuck McElroy. Hello, Chuck. How are you? How are you doing? I'm going well, thanks. Um, let's start with the most present thing that's happening in your life uh, at the moment. You're finishing up I uh, am. Air yeah. Australia International. Um, it's been your baby now for many years. 30. Um, 30-odd years, yeah. Why, why now? Why is it time? Well, uh, every I, I really never intended to stay more than 20. Uh, because my first career was 20 years, and I figured I'd do my second career would be 20 years. And then one thing led to another, and I just stayed on because I reckon everybody's got about three careers in their life. And so I just stayed on. And then one thing led to another, and I've had natural exit points that I've passed up. And this time I just said, well, why not do it this time? And mm. so I pulled the trigger, as they say, and and I said, I'm stopping this day. And while I did get extended uh, 19 days to finish up some stuff, the fact is I have, I'm now on a new adventure. My new adventure is getting, getting air astray down the road. And when I get done, I'm sure I'm going to be antsy and fi- I'll find something to do. You've got your third career ahead of you. I do. I do. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but, uh, uh, we went from shutting the company down and stopping training to selling uh, the assets of the company, which yeah. is a which is another business in mm. itself. So these are all the light planes you've accumulated yep, over yep, the years. Yep. yep. Well, there are only eight, and so far I've sold six, and I'm in the process of trying to put something together for my building to someone else to use my building, which I built in uh, right before GST. So. So what that was 2020. Yeah. Uh, the lease on the building at the airport has still got 22 years to run. So, 
and it's a pretty good lease, so yeah. uh, people are interested in that. Yeah. But uh, is it with a heavy heart that you uh, shut the doors, or are you ready? Well, that's never been in my personality. As I finish things, I don't regret what I've done. I just say they're done, mm. and now what? What can I do now? Yeah. So uh, that's how I really operate. You know, yeah. I, I don't. I tend not to have regrets about what woulda, coulda, and mm. shoulda, shoulda. There's no point. No. No. Let's go back to the very beginning, Chuck, or as you were as a child, Charles. Yes. Um, you were Charles growing up, and, and when you took on Chuck, that's that's another story yes, in itself. But uh, tell me where you grew up and what life was like for Charles as a kid. Well, I was born in uh, Austin, Texas, and my father was a mortician. Wow. And anyway, he uh, and I grew up until uh, I was about 13 in uh, Houston. Yeah. And then my dad had a chance to take over my step-grandfather's uh a liquor business, which is like an off-license, which mm -hmm. he did, because there was a university in our hometown, and it was a way that all the kids could go to university. So along the way, uh, uh, we did that, and uh, and then a typical growing up, it was a rural town. I went out and worked on what you guys would call places. I was a, a hay baler and all that stuff. Yeah. And I rode bulls and broke horses and did all that kind of stuff, and then... My dad asked me, because you could have a driver's license at 15 in Louisiana, and a real driver's license, not a, yeah. a P&L. <laughs> and my old man sold uh, booze to bootleggers in the next parish. Now, Louisiana has a parish system, which is like Shires. Sure. And so I would drive over there, and they call my father uh, Easy Money. Because selling whiskey was easy. This sounds like a movie. Seriously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, but anyway, uh, I'd go in and they'd say, Here, boy, here's your money. And they'd hand me $40. I'd drive for two bootleggers at a time. Yeah. And then here's uh, easy money's money. And I'd stick them in different pockets. The whole drive was 45 minutes. And I'd come back. And sometimes these guys had already been, I'd drive out, the police would drive in, they'd raid them, take them to court, fine them, they pay the finer out. And by the time I got back, my dad had already sold another batch, and I'd go right back over. <laughs> so, and he, the only rule he told me never to break was never to cross a state border because then it's a federal offense. Right. But uh, wow! So you became sort of acutely aware of that that line between. <laughs> well, if you're not pushing the line, legal and illegal. <laughs> yeah, if you're not pushing the line. You're not hard, working hard enough. Yeah. Um, so what did you want to be when you were a teen? I mean, presumably, you know, running bootleg booze wasn't uh, your career plan. What, what did you want to be when you were a kid and started to think about life beyond school? I was going to be a veterinarian since I was about eight years old. Right. And Is that I, from growing up, yes. you know, around horses and well, all sorts uh, of other animals in this Texas? Town in, this town in Louisiana was a farming community. Yeah. And uh, now it's a tourist trap. Mm -hmm. uh, because it happens to be the oldest town in the Louisiana Purchase, which is a big bunch of land. Anyway, uh, everybody found out I wanted to be a veterinarian, so every time they would round up cattle and they'd mark pigs or castrate cows or deliver calves, they'd call me up because I was free labor. I had my own vet, syringes, and all the things, because in those days it wasn't against people that weren't into drugs and stuff. So I had to go out there and I'd just work for these guys for free and mm. maybe gas money and or lunch and come home just smelling like something that should <laughs> the be the inside of a cow. <laughs> yeah, matter of fact, uh, more than once I smelled like the inside of a cow. 
And uh, anyway, so I went off to uni and I was preparing to go to vet school and I got my first degree in zoology and head into veterinary school and I saw this billboard zero to 150 in two seconds fly Navy. And I'm going, gee, I haven't done that. That might be fun. Yeah, and, uh, quite so different to it is, it paddocks is. and cattle. Uh, anyway, <laughs> I uh, went off and uh, and then I got into officer school and I started flying. Now, I used to get sick every flight for every for a year and a half. Yeah. And they nicknamed, well, they gave me my call sign of Chucker, and it means exactly what it means over here. And uh, so it kind of sticks with you. You don't get a choice about your call sign. So no. They said you get sick one more time, you're out, so I quit being sick. <laughs> and I really did quit being sick, and then one thing led to another, and I went from Pensacola, which is where naval aviation starts, and then you go to the East Coast, and you go to the West Coast, and you pick your airplane, and they said, what plane do you want to fly? And mm. I said, uh, Phantoms, because that's the one on the billboard, of course. Mm -hmm. And it was the hot thing at the time, not the Tomcat, not the Hornet. And they said, what coast? And I said, West Coast. And they said, you know you're going to Vietnam. And I said, well, why am I training to be a fighter pilot if I'm not going where I'm going to be used? So I went off and got in a squadron, uh, Fire Squadron 161, which no longer exists. And I went off to Vietnam. I actually hadn't finished my training, and they came and got me. And they said, don't worry, we'll fix him on the way over. And so two, two tours in Vietnam, and we, we were there right to the very end and came back. And then my old ship and my squadrons went to Japan in 1973. It was the USS Midway. And so they went to uh, uh, Yokosuka, Japan, and they were forward deploys, what they called it. Mm. So I did other things, and the other things were I ran a jungle school in the Philippines where I taught people how to survive, and I got to go to South America to learn that. Uh, and then I came back and I taught people how to fly fast jets uh, in uh, Beeville, Texas, and I managed to piss off my commanding officer so bad I called the detailer, who's the guy who signs your book, your uh, Basis. I said, get me out of here. He said, when? I said, now. Uh, anyway, <laughs> the guy had come up, and, and so he said, I only have East Coast carriers, and he'd named the, the carriers, and the last one was USS Midway, which is in Japan. I said, hang on a minute. That's in Japan. He said, that's right, Far East carriers. Right. And so off I went to uh, to Japan, and where I was the system flight deck officer on the Midway. Which means I had 110 guys running around dodging airplanes. Most dangerous fort, two and a half acres uh, in the world. It's a yeah. flight deck of an aircraft carrier. Everything can kill you. And I had all these guys that were like 18, and when you'd ask them why they did stuff, they couldn't tell you. Yeah. And they meant they didn't know why they did it. They really did. They're smart kids, but they didn't understand. And so I had to adopt being a short guy. Yeah. I had to adopt nobody screws with a crazy man mm. method of management. They were scared of me than dying. So <laughs> they did what I said. <laughs> and along the way, we had a few things happen. Like we, uh, off the, in the Moluccan Straits, a plane crashed on the deck and at four in the morning and we had a, a flight deck fire that looked like broad daylight. Mm. And we put that out in about three minutes. We still had 28 airplanes out. And, wow. And, uh, so then you do all this hero-type stuff you don't think about at the time. 
and uh, like hanging off the back of the boat, looking if there's a fire inside, stuff like that. Chuck McElwee, aviation legend, is our special guest on this episode of Inspiring Stories. We'll be back with more of his amazing story right after this. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. My guest in this episode is uh, aviation legend Chuck McElwee. You might remember a couple of years ago, uh, there was an incredible incident uh, that pushed Chuck into the global spotlight uh, for a period. Um, a, uh, a young trainee pilot at his flight school out of Jandicott uh, had to land a plane uh, with the assistance of, uh, of a, a, a guiding hand in a control tower down on the ground uh, because his instructor had uh, passed out uh, next to him. Um, but uh, we'll hear more of that uh, incredible story in just a moment. Um, Chuck, let's go back to, you mentioned um, your, your time in the Navy uh, and getting court-martialed. And this is a quote from you from several years ago, just talking about your medals. You said, you know, most of my medals, I couldn't tell you what they gave them to me for, but what I remember most from the Navy are the things I almost got court-martialed for. What did you almost get court-martialed for, Chuck? Uh, <clears throat> Can you tell us? Yeah, I sure. <laughs> uh, uh, we were in going up north Vietnam, and uh, when the French embassy got bombed, and uh, I get out of the airplane, and here's a Marine on the flight deck of a ship with no hearing aid, no safety equipment. Sir, the Admiral wants to see you and your pot, you know, the guy with you up in the Admiral's quarters. And so we go up there, what the, what's going on? And we called it the Blue Rug Dance because you stood at attention and got reamed out and apparently they thought we had bombed the French embassy, which would have been pretty easy to do because they had a giant French flag painted on the roof. And while I didn't like the French that much, because uh, the reason America was in Vietnam was because the French wanted to exit. And so we had to do some fast talking. Luckily, we had somebody at scene where we had dropped our bombs, which we killed a lot of fish in this river because we didn't like dropping on people if if they weren't at the target. And uh, so it took some convincing. And because I've been politically incorrect my whole life, uh, <laughs> a few other things have happened, like I was supposed to be surly to the undersecretary of the Navy, and I didn't even meet him, but I got blamed for that. And uh, a few other things that, uh, you know, let's just say we won't go into the individual details, okay. but I was trying to set yeah. up a party for You sound like you were, you, were the, you were the troubling one. You were the, I was. And as one you of were the CEO, rascal in the pack. An old CO of mine said, uh, well, it's good to see Chuck's come back from, uh, we had a reunion back a while back. It's good to see him back. He was good for being unusual. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you've got to be known for something, right? Something, we all yes. have our roles to yes, play. Yes, yes. Um, so you meet your, well, would later become your wife in about 1984. Um, uh, on a, actually, a, in a, 1979. Got married in 1980. I knew her about a year yeah. We were at Lewin Barracks, and uh, I can't really tell you the line, but I was pretty drunk, and I, she went by, <laughs> and I, I made a comment, and she had met somebody already, and anyway, I invited her to the Parmelia Hilton, and uh, and we had an admin on the, uh, in the penthouse, and she came the next night, and usually it was for light drinks and adult conversation, and then we'd go out to dinner. Yeah. But the requirement was that you had to dress up. You know, all the guys had to wear coats and ties, and the women had to be, uh, you know, very, yeah. very smick. And Properly so, attired. Yes. Uh, the good thing about that is she was amazed. 
went up to King's Park. There was a restaurant there, and it might still be there. And the waiter dumped this giant candle full of candle wax right in my crotch, and somehow I didn't go nuts off on it. (laughs) And she said, I've I've never seen anybody do that and hold it cool, you know. uh, So anyway, one thing led to another, and like I said, I was going broke coming down here. Yeah. So we got married, and... All I can tell you is that it's been interesting the whole time. <laughs> well, that's good. From what I know, which is very little of you, Chuck, yeah. it sounds like that suits you. Well, she's kind of interesting herself. So. <laughs> oh, that might be a whole other episode. Um, so you started a, a flight school here in in Perth. Tell me, like, where did the idea come about? How did you do it? Well, did you start sort of, you know, building a collection of planes to use? Well, uh, when I got off the plane, a lot of people in Australia don't understand that uh, when you migrate to this country, I was migrating as a, uh, a self-funded retiree. Mm-hmm. And I got off the plane. No one put their arm around me and uh, said, let me help you get started. And my wife had gone to St. Hilda, so she knew a lot of people in, in around and uh, they were around, but. We lived down in Fremantle in South Fremantle where it was uh, back of beyond, back of the black stump. Uh, yeah. Thanks what they used to say. Anyway, uh, long shorts, I got antsy after about 15 seconds. I was going to take a year off. No. And so I ended up selling life insurance. Wow. Oh, well, it wasn't very good because I didn't believe in life insurance. <laughs> I hate betting I'm going to die and nobody, and everybody else wins but me. Yeah. So I went out to talk to a guy at Janicott, and he hired me as his schedules officer. Yeah. Which meant he had a big flying school, and he had 12 instructors, and he had 12 airplanes, and he had 60 full-time students. So I made that run, and after working for him for eight months, uh, and we were always having to unscrew his messes. I mean, he'd, he'd he'd tell people stuff, and then we'd have to go back and placate all the people. So after eight months, he didn't actually know my name. Mm. Uh, he didn't know Chuck, didn't know Chucker, he didn't know McElwee. He called me Mac. And anyway, he asked me to do a big project for him, which was basically generate a half a million dollars in two months out of the students that we had. And that, that wasn't very difficult, but the long and short was uh, I didn't want the traditional payback, and it wasn't part of my pay packet, and it was going to take all two months. But being from the Navy, not fresh from the Navy, I was used to working extended lengths of time. So when it came time to collect, he nothing was added to the pay packet because yeah. it was cash. And I said, well, I guess I got to quit. And he said, no, no. And I figured that if I could, he could yell at me, which he yelled at me a lot, I figured I could yell at myself. So... You know, when you sit in the office like we're sitting here now, uh, he said, if I owned this place, I'd do this. If I owned this place, I'd do that. So I started, so I left the company, and I called the guy I sat in the room with and said, why don't we? And he said, I got no money. So I came up with a sum, which I'll just tell you, it's 30000 He spent yep. three immediately. And uh, we had to make it go. He, mm. I lent him his half and went on from there. But... Uh, we went around and convinced people to give us credit, mm. and we bought out a flying school, and we had $9,000 in the bank. Wow. 56 days worth of trading if we didn't get anything. And yep. uh, so we convinced all these guys to give a line of credit, and the trick was that the day they walked in, we had to pay them. Yeah. 
And because uh, in those days, there weren't internet billing or any of this stuff. They'd walk in and some of them wanted cash. So we did that. And then as all partnerships go, or a lot of partnerships, majority maybe, it kind of turned, uh, went south on us. My partner and I broke up. And mm-hmm. to this day, I consider it wasn't the money I paid him to get out. It was I lost a good friend. Mm-hmm. Anyway, and there I am by myself and... And we'd already bought a couple of airplanes, uh, the first of which I uh, was an emotional buy because I wanted to turn upside down. <laughs> and uh, but uh, we made that our our uh, signature aircraft, and then we bought other airplanes, and we just started. And it was uh, pay your bill at the end of the, your flying lessons. You want to learn to fly? We'll teach you. You pay your bill, and we progressed from that. And as we got more money, I rolled money back into the company and we'd buy other airplanes and we'd buy other airplanes because the limiting factor wasn't how many instructors I had. The limiting factor was how many airplanes I could put in the air at one time. Yep. And so there was a lot of people oh, back then, you know, from the get go who yeah, wanted yeah, there were. to learn how to fly. Well, mostly they just wanted somebody to look at them and say, okay, tell me why you want to learn to fly. Yeah. And they'd say, I don't understand. And I'd tell them the billboard story. And I said, so why do you want to learn to fly? And they would tell me. And uh, so along the way, we had to move buildings a couple of times. We finally built our own building. And mm. I put my desk right in the middle of the uh, front room, not the lobby. Yeah, but it's a big lobby, and I'm there. So mm. Anybody that walks in can walk over and talk to me. Mm. And along the way, I quit dressing like everybody else. Uh, you know, dressed like a uh, white shirt, epaulets, bars, and all this stuff. Yeah. And I, a guy gave me a Hawaiian shirt one day. <laughs> and he had gone to Hawaii, one of the students, and I brought it back, and I had no clean shirts. Yeah. So I just put it on, and everybody said, wow, that looks yeah. good. So after yeah. that, I must have 50 Hawaiian <laughs> shirts. <laughs> and uh, so, and they're all from Hawaii. Brilliant. And uh, funny, you can get Hawaiian shirts cheaper and you can buy them here and mail to you. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so that. after that, I started saying, they said, why are you dressed like this? And I said, because I own a place and I can. I can do whatever the hell I want. <laughs> yeah. But everybody else had to dress in uniform. And, yeah. And I, I, I had a difference of opinion than other businesses. Students were there to learn to fly and they were not students. They were customers. Mm. I said, we're like McDonald's. You get the wrong hamburger at McDonald's, you know exactly what to do. That's what you do at a flying school. Instructors were only there to get started. Matter of fact, I used to tell everybody, if you're here in three years, I'm going to fire you. Mm-hmm. Because they should get everything I got to give them, and then they should move to the next level. Mm-hmm. And over the 30 years I've been in business, we've had about 400 flight instructors. Amazing. And I don't know how many thousands of students, but... Uh, they're coming out of the woodwork. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Don't thank me. Well, I, I, bet I really are. want people to do. I never looked at the accolades. It's great doing this program, but if my instructors uh, just carry on the favor and I, they don't have to tell me they did it from mm. some new guy somewhere in their history, mm. they don't have to tell me. That's all I want them to do. Chuck, I want to uh, ask you about some of the um, the standout moments uh, during your years operating the flight school. Um, the one I mentioned, you know, the, the amazing landing of the trainee pilot. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll revisit that. Um, but also a time when you had you had to uh, land and try to land in a cul-de-sac, <laughs> oh. well. um, which is another story in itself. And 
I have to ask you about the Mile High Club as well, because that um, that sounds like a, a tale that needs to be told, it, yeah, in part at least. Anyway. Sure. Which one do you want to start with? <laughs> well, we'll take a break, and then we'll go through them in order right after this. Chuck McElwee is our special guest uh, on Inspiring Stories. We'll hear more of his story after this. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments, because the little things are everything. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Emergency, emergency, emergency. This is Tango, Foxtrot, Romeo. No sound more. Perfect, perfect. Power, little book, power off, power off, power off, power off. Raise the nose gently. Raise the nose gently. Hold it off. Hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it right there. This is perfect. Hold it, hold it. Gently start breaking now. Gently start breaking now. And you're down on the ground. You did it, mate. Well done. That's amazing. You've done so well. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. That was uh, an incredible moment uh, back in 2019 at Chanticott Airport where a trainee pilot uh, had to land his aircraft uh, unassisted, really, for the first time on just his uh, third uh, time up in in an aircraft uh, in the cockpit. Uh, An incredible story that puts uh, my guest in this episode of Inspiring Stories, Chuck McElwee, uh, in the global spotlight. Uh, Chuck, you became kind of the wowee story uh, of the time, didn't you? What do you What do you remember from that? Well, uh, the guy was Max Sylvester, who's, yep. who's still flying, and he's still well, learning. That's good. Flying. You didn't scare him off then. No, no. And uh, <laughs> his wife was there, by the way. And, yeah. Uh, she had two toddlers, and she was pregnant. And the biggest problem was controlling what people were saying. You know, we got, had a lot of people gathered and keeping them away from her because. This really could have gone bad. Yeah. And uh, she was a rock. Yeah. I mean, uh, anyway, Max gets down and he's hyper, but I luckily live very close to the airport and I got a call and said, get down here. And yeah. I was there in about five minutes. So so his instructor in next to him in the cockpit yep. had passed out, collapsed. Yes, he had, yeah, a, had a medical episode. He had a tumor behind his right eye. It was a non-malignant tumor, but he, mm. he did pass out. And uh, so he touched down, and interesting, after he touched down, the instructor came awake and walked to the ambulance. Wow. And uh, the real problem in this uh, episode was it was about this time of year, you know, and they had some rain clouds around, but everybody was concerned about him landing, but it was getting dark. Matter of fact, from the time they got him out into the ambulance and brought him in to us, field went totally black. Wow. To the point that I had to send another pilot out with a follow-me truck because this airplane didn't have any taxi lights. And the following truck had to get in front of him and put his headlights on so he could see the taxiway. It turned about six, about as black as the inside of a witch. You know, I'm I'm telling you, it was an interesting time and everybody was concentrating on him flying, but they weren't watching the weather. Yeah. It really, within 15 minutes, it went from It was then or it would have been a much more difficult proposition. Well, he would have seen the runway, but I can tell you landing at night, the first time they have a depth perception problem, you feel high. Yeah. It would have been a lot lot more difficult. Everything's worked out beautifully. Yes. Um, And then you've suddenly found yourself just getting inundated with calls from media outlets all over the world. Well, we did 40 in 48 hours. That's a lot. Uh, And uh, they didn't, I've screened them all. And so I knew Max would be, uh, would catch a lot of grief. So basically I did all the pitches and I said, if you want to talk to Max, uh, then send me an email. I'll give it to Max, and he can pick the ones he wants to do. Yeah. But uh, I had from New Zealand, because the instructor originally lived in New- was born in New Zealand, I had from uh, New York, London, 
uh, all over. All over. All over. Yeah. And and uh, anyway, the idea was not to make it into something it wasn't, to make it as simple as possible and, and to uh, at least inspire people that it's not as difficult as you think. Matter mm. of fact... If if you went out today, if you've never flown, you went out today, I'd tell you to go do a trial flight, and you'll do the takeoff. You'll fly around. You won't scare yourself. You It's it's much easier than driving a car. Really? Much, much easier. Really? Your left foot and your right foot do exactly the opposite, and you don't have some fool over <laughs> yeah. like in the next Trying lane. Trying to merge with you. Yeah. No, <laughs> I mean, coming out here today, I had somebody just merged right into me and I'm oh like, yeah oh thanks thank goodness luckily i got a jeep and they tend to avoid jeeps for some unknown reason but i'm happy if only they knew who was behind the wheel yes, if only they knew yes. and what you were capable of chuck can i take you back to a, an episode that you were involved with more directly in 2005 this is a headline from a newspaper back in 2005 ex-fighter pilot crashes on front lawn I mean, it, the headline says it all, but uh, tell us more. Well, when I'd been in the Navy, uh, my first commanding officer, he taught me never ask your people to do something you wouldn't do. Now, I own a flying school, and we change engines. And in the military, you always do a test flight. Yeah, It's not a requirement here in general aviation. But I put the requirement on our people, so I went out to do the engine run-in, as they call it. And two hours and 41 minutes into it. I'm coming through Adventure World into to land at Janicott and I'm looking, I'm going, why is the propeller slowing down? <laughs> really, I said that to myself. And gee, suddenly it's Mayday, Mayday, Mayday and uh, and you, then suddenly there's a gigantic power line that you don't normally notice. Yeah. And it all comes in. The, so a great plan went away and now I had to salvage the uh, plan. And the salvage was look for any place to land where no people. So I'm scanning the ground. Okay, there's a place. You're not measuring it with your eyes. So, yeah, I think I can do that. And anyway, I got lined up, came through all these uh, neighborhood uh, phone lines and power lines and that I didn't see. Somehow yeah. I didn't catch one. And I caught one so cable. Clipped, clipped a power line. Well, it didn't exactly clip it. It, <laughs> it caught me and rolled me upside down. And I hid in the middle of a street and, and slid up into this guy's yard and hit his carport pole, and it bent slightly. And uh, as everybody says, well, tell me more. And I said, well, it landed on the hardest part of the airplane, my yeah. head. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and the bend on the pole was so minor that people wouldn't even come out and look at it. So yeah. my general hand went down to Stratco and picked, so that looks about the right color, and he jacked it up and got a pop rivet gun and, and drilled it out, put it up, and it was all done. Good to go. No, but uh, let's just say I uh, got my attention. Yeah. So this was just in a, in a pretty quiet cul-de-sac in Southlake. Yeah. You know, just in a, a otherwise ordinary day. I mean, every yeah. day just about the news, there's someone's come off the road and driven their car yeah. into someone's well, actually, front lawn or front lounge room or whatever. You yeah, well, you I went was, one better. I was trying to go to the freeway, <laughs> and that's when uh, uh, the Quinana didn't have a train line in the middle of it. I was yeah. trying to land over there. But, well, in the, but between... Yes, they were just between the, the the north and south carriageways. Yeah, yeah, uh, right. But uh, I'd always had in my head if I was going to do this, if I could land on a road, it's always better because you know you want to keep the airplane together. But it became really evident that mm. that plan wasn't going to happen, so mm. I had to pick another one. And then 
let's just say I came out of the airplane after being upside down in the guy's driveway like a rat out of a drain pipe. <laughs> you know, so... Uh, what did they say to you when they burst out the front door and see a plane in their front yard? He said, uh, are you okay? Yeah. <laughs> I'm here. And, anyway, and, were you, and were you okay? Oh, I had a... I'd hit my shin, and uh, then I'd scraped. I had a lot of blood coming on my head, but it turned out to be just a, uh, a scrape. Yeah. Uh, like I said, my head's hard. And, and do you consider yourself lucky, or was it was it never in doubt, Chuck, as you're coming down? Obviously, yeah. you had a, an issue to deal with, but did you have complete faith? Were you calm on the way down? Well, you don't have time to be uncalm, but I tell people I was not a great pilot. And I, I'll say that to this day. I was a lucky pilot. Yeah. And uh, and there's an old adage when I grew up in the military was I'd rather be lucky than good. And so on that occasion, I was uh, very, very lucky. And, yeah. Uh, and I went back, and one of the things I did at my school, which I highly recommend to people learning, is listen to guys and there I was stories. And and I wrote a story about this, uh, about turning upside down. I, I called it, What Did You Do on Saturday? And uh, I wrote that story in about 15 minutes, but I make everybody get up in my flying school and tell their story amongst their mm. peers because every pilot says in his head, if I was there, I would do this, I would do that. But they're pre-flying it, so if it ever happens to them, they now have a mindset they can go to. When you do it the first time, like, you know, I knew I was going to have to land. I didn't know I was going to have to land upside down. Mm. But, uh, that's how it happened. And, yeah. then, and the ambos looked at me and said, you're okay. I said, okay, a uh, couple of things. Can you help me find my phone? The battery went one way, the phone went another. I put it together, it worked. And a guy I called at work says, uh, where, where are you calling me from? And I said, I just crashed off the end of the runway. <laughs> and he goes, well, nobody's told me. I said, come get me. He says, I can't, I don't have a car. <laughs> so I go to the ambos and said, can you give me a ride to the airport? Nah. Okay, can you give me a ride to Fremantle Hospital? I figured I could get a cab there. Sure enough, I went in there, and uh, and the media was all there, but they don't come into the emergency room. And I called the wife and said, come get me. And, and she said, what happened? And I told her, and she, she couldn't believe it. She said, I was kidding. And I said, after several explosives, I said, get down here and get me. So yeah. I, oh, down she came. Chuck, we need to take another break. Okay. I, I'm interested to hear who are all these people, the, the many thousands of people who come knocking on your door or, you know, okay. calling you up saying, I want to learn how to fly. I imagine they come from all different walks of life. So I'd love to get your insight on that. And of course, the Mile High Club as okay. well. Plenty to get through in the uh, final stretch of this episode of Inspiring Stories with Chuck McElwee back with more in a moment. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Tim McMillan is my name. My guest, Chuck McElwee, uh, has trained thousands of people who wanted to jump in a plane for whatever reason, to go on to become a commercial pilot, to just become a private pilot, just because they love it, just because they wanted the adventure the kudos, the ego, all sorts of different reasons, motivations, uh, I'm guessing, Chuck, to, yeah. to come and knock on your door. <clears throat> you must have met some really colourful characters. And can I ask too, have you had any that have come to acquire <laughs> light skills for possibly dubious means? Yes. Uh, <laughs> if I can put it that way. Well, we had the most wanted man in Australia come to learn to fly. Is that right? Who yeah. was that? His name was Everett. He uh, was had been an SAS soldier. Yeah. And um, anyway, to me, he was just a kind of a shortish guy with a plump wife and a fat baby and drove a big Toyota Land Rover. 
And uh, anyway, uh, he was good, and uh, but he was the guy that blew up the Lewin Barracks. Yeah. The armory because he'd stolen a bunch of stuff out of there. Anyway, uh, but he was kind of interesting. There were a few guys that were uh, dealing in illicit drugs. But the good thing about me, when I lived in Japan, I met the Yakuza. And uh, you can turn these people down politely. Yeah. Do it in such a way that uh, they're not going to be threatened. Yeah. And you can get by with it. And and the guys that wanted uh, to learn to fly that I figured were going to hire my airplanes to move powdered sugar to Kalgoorlie, I, they took took what I had to say and they they honored it. Yeah. Now, did they do it themselves later? I don't know. It's not something I want to ask questions. There's certain yeah, things. But you weren't a part of it. Yeah. 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 Very good. Um, the Mile High Club. I've got to ask you about the Mile High Club. Okay. It, like a genuine Mile High Club. Genuine. You you were one of the originals. One well, of the genuine, um, I suppose, facilitators of this uh, once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for people who just wanted to maybe tick that off their bucket list. Chuck, how did you come up with the idea? Well, <clears throat> first of all, a guy in 1910 named Sperry who made autopilots, first guy that made autopilot, is the guy who came up with the idea. Right. And when they crashed, he had this married woman, and the crash was so violent that it knocked her clothes off. That's the story. Right. Well, it's been going on since 1910. So uh, I was doing something else. I was doing patient repatriation. Uh-huh. Flying Docs funded, or in those days was funded, to pick people up from the country and bring them in. But they would take them home. Uh, and, but they would offload patients for emergencies, just like ambulances. Mm. And so... I'm doing this, getting ready to do this, and somebody came in and says, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm setting up the Mile High Club because they they have people that don't want you to do things even though they're not going to do them. Anyway, the long and the shorts, they believe me, and somehow it got to the Sunday Times, uh, and they called me up and said, how many have you done? I said, 25. Can we do a story on you? And I'm like, sure, why not? You know, and uh, so uh, then we had to come up with a way to make it look like we'd done it. So they wanted to come out and take a photo of us because the Sunday Times used to put a photo of you amongst all the other things. So I said, sure. How about next week? We're a little busy this week. So we dummied this up, and we got an attractive young couple who was on a uh, cruise liner, and they swore they'd done it, and they did do it uh, later. But up to this point, we hadn't done any, and we just dummied this thing up, and next thing we know, we were off and running. Yeah, and I bet. So uh, it never actually made us that much money, but we did uh, almost 360. So the 360 people? No, 360 60 flights. Flights. Uh, yeah. So anyway, the long and the short is every once in a while somebody would come up and say, how about it? A few years ago, somebody had the wheelie bin of fortune. We had six garbage dumpsters, and in three were good prizes, and three were nothing yeah uh garbage and uh so i gave them one because they were going to promote it on air for anything for free promotion yeah and a guy picked it the first time and they called me up and says what are we going to do well yeah okay i'll give you another one anyway so i did and then we had guys like it at other radio stations shock jocks that says uh where was the most unusual place you ever had sex was a thing and they wanted they would talk about us but the the prize was uh a mile high club and uh, 
So this guy calls up, and they've been taking calls. He said, I had sex on top of Mackers. <laughs> the guy says, how did you convince her to go up there? And he said, who said it was a girl? <laughs> and he said, you win. And uh, anyway, because of that promotion, we had six Mile High Clubs in one day wow. on Valentine's Day. Wow. And the guy Busy who guy. won never took it. Right. Never took it. And, uh, so who did take it, Chuck? You must know some people who would be known around Perth. You must hold a few secrets. Yes, but I won't tell. There was a sports individual whose okay. friends brought him a Mile High Club. and they. Can you give it. us any more clues? No. No? All I know is they kept talking, talking it up, talking it up. And they had found a professional to go on his ride. Right. Anyway, they walk him out to the Sounds airplane. Sounds like a buck's night, yeah. And they open the door, and I had to, we had to chase him down. He's running across the runway. <laughs> he wasn't going to get in the airplane. You know, and okay, fine, fine. You don't have to do this. We'll send you down to Martyr River with your partner of choice, not... Yeah, and they the guys just had so much fun. <laughs> uh, anyway. They still got value out of it, even though it didn't oh, take they it. did. Yeah, they did. But uh, uh, we've done probably some of the most memorable ones were a woman got engaged. She came across. We had a privacy curtain, really thick. Yeah, but it's held up. You have to be able to move it quickly. Yeah, and she was stark naked, and we go, holy moly, she's being beaten back there. But she was saying, look, look, look at my diamond <laughs> ring. Okay, the next flight, the guy comes over looking like a grizzly bear. I mean, he's the hairy guy, and he's wanting something, and they're going, she's beating him, and all he wanted is more champagne. <laughs> you know? Wow. And then we had a 70-year-old who did it three times with three different toy boys, very wealthy woman. Wow. She had her eyes on my pilot who did not want to go in the back with her. <laughs> Most, a matter of fact, most pilots that go on the Mile High Club rather fly the airplane than yeah. go in the back. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, when they ask you where you're going, you say, uh, if you're looking out the window, you're doing something wrong. <laughs> oh, wow. You've just opened a can of worms that, uh, oh, no. No, you know, Trust we me. could really empty out and have hey, some fun I'm like with. a priest. Yeah. It sounds like you are a custodian of many secrets there. Chuck, you've almost got a, a bounty on your head, I, I no, dare say. No. You know too much. No. <laughs> I, I, I might be a priest in my next life. <laughs> <laughs> well, Chuck, as a final question uh, for this uh, this episode of Inspiring Stories, um, what is your next career going to be? Have you got any thoughts? You said you know you've you've just wrapped up your your second, albeit a, a longer hmm. um, stint than you originally planned. But if you say there's three careers in everyone's life, well. I've got enough BS in me to write. I've written many stories. I used to write for an aviation magazine here yeah. in Perth. And they, they hated me because I never wrote on the subject. They give you a subject to talk about. And you I'd wrote about write something else, just something deliberately. Else, something else. <laughs> anyway, uh, I did a couple of years of that, but I never asked for money. And I thought about maybe uh, compiling some old guy stories or just writing, taking up writing. But uh, maybe being a uh, consultant. Yeah. Who would want that? That sounds advice. a bit boring for you, Chuck. Well, the problem is most <laughs> most people pay you to be a consultant and then go off and do it their own way. Yeah. But yeah. the idea is do something outrageous. Yep. I don't know. Maybe I'll go back to bootleg. <laughs> <laughs> go full circle. Lastly, though, getting up in a plane does it still give you a thrill? You know, when the, when the plane leaves oh. the tarmac and and you're up just free in the sky, do you still get that same buzz? I do, I do. And, yeah. Uh, matter of fact, I because of various things, I haven't flown for the last couple of years. And the other day, I had a taxi plane for maintenance, and I'm going. They were asking me just last night, well, 
what happened. And I said, well, I almost went for a circuit, but, uh, <laughs> but I didn't have certain things in place before I left. And, uh, because there are a whole set of regulations. Yeah. Look, I know how to be illegal. I just choose to be legal. And uh, it's no use in being your last flight being totally illegal unless you're really ready for that. Yeah. I did have a secret desire the last day in Australia to fly under every bridge between Fremantle in the airport and land and toss the keys of my license to the guys meeting me and get on a plane <laughs> and leave the country. But I figured that might be ter- really pressing it. It may yeah. not let me out. Yeah, that would be a last mission. Yeah. <laughs> but you've already flagged it, Chuck, so if it happens, well, you heard it here me. first. It's not yeah. me. No, it's not you. It's not you. Um, Chuck, I would love to uh, hear many, many more of your stories, but we're out of time, unfortunately. Thank you so much uh, for coming in and sharing your story with us. I, I do appreciate it. Okay. You've been listening to Inspiring Stories here on 882 6PR. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. We look forward to you joining us again next time as we unearth another inspiring story. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semi finals, all thanks to McDonald's. Mackers, together and loving it. TNCs apply.